Good morning, church. Uh, it is exciting as we continue this series called The Movement to dig into the end of Acts chapter 17. Um, goodness, I almost just want to say, hey, go share the gospel and dismiss because what just happened will likely motivate you more than what I'm about to say. Uh, so I almost hate to ruin it, but I'm going to trust that the word of God is living and active and going to stir up our affections even more for Jesus. Um, and so I ask a question that almost sounds like it's taking a total detour, but I'll explain why. Have you guys ever had a terrible boss? I'm not asking about currently because your boss may or may not go to this church. But raise your hand if you've ever had a guy that, or, or, or girl that you, you would say was a terrible boss boss yes uh a lot of us okay um pastor chris was sharing with us this week as we prepared to look at what type of leader the apostle paul was uh he was saying that he once had a boss that at a small building company and he would say all the time uh do you want to be one of the big boys then you better act like a big boy there's a i'll i'll, I'll use an old margaret thatcher quote um, a little bit of it. If you have to tell someone you're powerful, you're probably not, right? If you have to tell someone you're a leader, you're probably not. See, uh, I, I kind of look back at different bosses I've had, and I, I am blessed here, but that has not always been the case. I had uh, one in particular that told me, hey, I've paid my dues. I, I worked my way up. Now I call the shots. And John Maxwell, the pastor and leadership guru, would call that positional leadership. And he'd say that is the lowest form of leadership, that you are a leader simply because you have a title. Other people follow you simply because they don't want to lose their jobs. And as I'm talking, some of you guys might go, huh, I think that's kind of what I do. But there's another type of leadership, which is actually level five in the Maxwell handbook called personal leadership, and it's the type of leader that when, when they're leading, you just want to go wherever they're going to go. It's their authenticity, their humility, their, their, the way that they serve people and love people that makes you want to run through a brick wall for them, even if you're not sure it's going to fall down, you're just going to run straight into it, right? There are leaders that can make us do that, and if I were to walk through, as we have, the book of Acts, you see that the Apostle Paul is one of those types of leaders, to the point that he was able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. We've seen Paul's life before Christ. We saw his conversion. We've seen his best speeches and the boldness and willingness that he lives his life with for the sake of the gospel. And he is just that type of leader. And today I want to look at Acts chapter 17 starting with verse 16, so that we can understand what it looks like to imitate Paul. Starting with verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? It says, for you bring some strange new things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. God, we love you. Would you move in a mighty way today? God, I pray that you would just hide me behind the words of Scripture, Lord, that, that you would be mighty in this place. God, that, that your word would reveal to us the brokenness inside of us in light of who you are and what you've called us to be. And God, that your spirit would change us. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we were introduced to Paul in Acts chapter 7. And again, we've walked through this series. This is message number 19 in this series. So we were introduced to him when he was still called what? Saul. He was a persecutor of the church. That's chapter 7, right? We see him kill Stephen. Chapter 8, we see him persecuting the church. And in chapter 9, we see him come to Christ, confronted by the risen Christ. But after he's introduced in chapter 7 and 8, he's actually the main character in the story for 17 of the next 20 chapters. And if all we do at this church and in our devotional life is trace the storyline of Paul without following in the footsteps of the guy that says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, we're missing it. And so this morning, I want to look at three particular ways that we can take him up on this challenge. Follow me as I follow Christ. And the first one, be resolved to preach Christ even when you're all alone. So last week, we talked about the beginning of chapter 17 and how it related to the church of Thessalonica, that he walks in and, and it says that as was his custom, he walks into the synagogue where he knew he would be treated poorly, likely, for his faith in Christ. See, he grew up um, a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, um, learned from the absolute best, was trained and wicked smart and, and absolutely would have been a leader in the Jewish movement to the point that he was the leader of the persecution of the church. He, he comes to Christ in chapter 9, and what we see here is he begins this custom of walking into a town and walking into the synagogue and beginning to preach Christ and the resurrection, taking what they know and connecting the dots for them to see what they're missing. In other words, we kept using this term, he contextualized the gospel. And we see that he even talks about the way he did it in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, I was, I was gentle among you like a nursing mother. The kindness with which he spoke and then he's pushed out of town and into Berea and he's pushed out of town again when that mob learns that uh, the, the first Thessalonian mob learns that he's gone to Berea. They, they pushed him out of there and he ends up jumping on board a ship and going to Athens where he now awaits his compadres, his amigos, his friends who have been his ministry partners for the last several years but we see chapters it says, verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. I don't know how many introverts we have in the room. It might not seem like it because I'm up on stage right now, but, but I am absolutely an introvert. An introvert versus extrovert is not, are you good at talking to people or are you not? It's just, do you get energy from being surrounded by people or do you feel exhausted when your wife invites a bunch of people over? I have noticed um, that I feel really good and social when my wife is my sidekick, right? Because I don't have to carry on the conversation alone, and actually she'll probably carry on 90% of it 
for me, which is really helpful because it makes it where I'm not stressed out about if this is going to get awkward. I'm the one that feels awkward first in a conversation, I think. I'm like, gosh, this is really dying. I don't really know how to revive this, but my wife just never feels awkward. I don't know if any of you feel like that, but what we're seeing here is that Paul, I'm not saying he was introvert or extrovert, but he has no sidekicks. He has no sidekicks in this, in this situation, instance. I was about to mix those two words, instuation. Um, it is always easier to share the gospel when someone is alongside of you. We, we even see this is Jesus's organizational plan in Luke chapter 10. He sends them out uh, in pairs, two by two, go out and, and share the gospel with people and serve people. And it's so easy for us to just kind of lean on that so that if the situation isn't ideal for us to share the gospel, we probably won't. It would have been so easy for us in this situation to just passively wait and go, I'm a missionary, but I'm like a team missionary. I'm, this is like a, a duo thing. I don't want to hog the glory. I'd really rather just sit here. We, we do this at work, right? I'm the only Christian at my work or at, at my school or in my friend group. I'd feel so much more confident. Well, I want you to feel encouraged by, by this message as we see that Paul is the type of guy that let out anyway. He was actively waiting and not waiting for everyone to show up as much as he was just preparing to go share the gospel. They did a, they did a um, poll to see what the reasons that Christians are scared to do this. And I know that you've heard over and over, share the gospel. We're going to train you to share the gospel. We're going to embolden you to share the gospel. And that's, that's because that's what Acts is about. Right? You might be sitting here going, goodness, I feel like all we talk about is sharing the gospel. That's because that's what the church does. We're, we're a hospital for the sick, right? We, what we have is the power of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ to see a lost and dying world come to faith. That's what we bring to the table. If we think that we bring the best concert this side of the Mississippi to the table, we're probably not going to attract everybody. But if we know that the hope of life is in Jesus Christ and him alone, we will pursue people for the sake of building gospel relationships. And so here are the reasons that people don't share the gospel. One is fear. Two is insecurity. Three is apathy. And four is busyness. I'll stop for a second on three and four. Uh, apathy. Apathy just means that uh, if, if I were to diagnose this, we're just not totally sure that what we bring to the table is what they need. Right, we lack motivation because maybe we're not confident in the character of God. Maybe we're not confident at, at the deep need that they have to know about Jesus. Busyness, um, I've heard so many times, and I think this is probably true, even the young people today are more busy than they've ever been or feel more busy than they've ever been. Because not only are they surrounded by more difficult tasks at school and demands with their extracurricular activities, but then all day they feel like they're having to do something because they have their phone and access to their phone that is just creating anxiety within them. The good news, well actually it's bad news first, the, the bad news is life will only get busier, young people. 
It will only get harder. And yet the good news is God gives us a capacity to deal with that busyness as we go. I could not imagine at 17 or 18 years old if my life is what it is now, where from the time I wake up to the time the day ends, I have demands on me and tasks to, to get done that I, we're, we're constantly budgeting and we're taking care of babies from morning and and then I go to work and then I come home and it's taking care of babies and then it's getting up in the middle of the night with baby it's just it's nonstop and yet the God, God gives you a capacity to grow in what he's called you to do and so busyness won't fade but God will equip you I've heard it said that God will not give you 24 hours to do something that would take 26 hours right God is graciously providing us the time to accomplish what he's called us to accomplish he knows how many hours are in a day But I want to focus here on two of these, fear and insecurity. First, insecurity. Insecurity is kind of divided up into two categories, ignorance and giftedness. Insecurity in the sense that you're so worried that they're going to say something that you don't know how to respond to. You're so worried that maybe you don't know enough, you don't have all of the answers. Or maybe you're just worried that you're not good enough at it. Some of us will pull 1 Corinthians 12 and go, actually, evangelism, that's a gift, right? That's one of the spiritual gifts, right? And yet, God has called all of us to it. And then fear is simply the fear of man, fear of what someone's going to think about us, fear that that maybe we're going to screw up, but, but beyond that, maybe they'll look down upon us. Maybe it'll hurt our relationship. I have a professor in seminary that, that puts it this way. He says, it's like, uh, we, we should look at everything like balancing scales when it comes to evangelism. And the fear of man, what we're saying is that what they think of us is weightier than where they're going to spend eternity. It is weightier to us. And if we diagnose that and we know that our fear is simply for ourselves rather than a love for others, then maybe God will bring conviction to us. Insecurity, fear, apathy, busyness, those are roadblocks to the movement. So how do we wait? How do we wait? Did Paul wait passively or actively? Well, this is what it says in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue. As he waited for his friends, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. And in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Paul gets to work engaging the culture. He doesn't just wait for his friends to arrive. As a matter of fact... If you want to keep reading, you'll see that his friends never arrive. They didn't show up. He meets up with them in Corinth in the next chapter. Imagine the lack of fruitfulness that would have been in the church that ends up developing in Athens as people believe the message of the gospel if he just sat there passively waiting. And yet I will confess there are so many times when I'm waiting for the situation to be right before I share the gospel. As if someone's going to walk up to me and say, hey, you look like a Christian. Would you tell me about Jesus? That same professor um, talked about the scales. He, he told a story of uh, feeling like the, the Lord was prompting him to share the gospel with a gas station attendant as he walked in. He was already having the worst day because their babysitter canceled on them, and so they had to find someone else last minute. And then they go to the gas station, and he, he tries to pay at the pump, and would you believe it? You have to go in to pay. Which I'm telling you, like, apart from frustration with traffic, that is 
in my life, one of the most frustrating things that happens is when I try to swipe my card, it's like, please see attendant. And I'm like, I will pull to the next pump to see if this thing will work. I do not want to go in. Well, he goes in, he feels like the Lord is prompting him to share the gospel with this woman at the counter, and, and he's too frustrated, and he goes, God, the situation is not right. And he said right next to him, as he is chickened out of this, this evangelistic opportunity, a trucker walks in and goes, ma'am, do you know Jesus? And he said that he was so frustrated in that moment, not because that guy stole the glory, but because he was like, gosh, that's not how you do it. That's not, that's not the intro question. You didn't, even, you didn't even contextualize it to the situation. You didn't say, hey, just as gas is the way that a car runs, so the Holy Spirit is the way of the Christian. He didn't contextualize anything, and he's getting frustrated. And he said that this woman begins to tear up at that question. She goes, no, I don't. Would you tell me about it? And this professor of evangelism, who's outing himself to the class, says that he walked out weeping at the hardness of his heart and the sensitivity of a trucker who'd never taken a seminary class likely in his life, never read an evangelism book, but is faithful. Silas and Timothy, the compadres of Paul, they never show up. They meet up in Corinth. But Paul didn't wait for perfect circumstances. He didn't wait till he was in the mood. He didn't wait till he was having the perfect day. He didn't wait for someone to ask him. Point two, be bothered by sin. Did you know that Athens, unlike some other biblical cities, Athens still exists today. You can still go see it in at least the ruins, but, but very similar to what it would have looked like back then. This was the Acropolis, the center of ancient Athens. It was built up on a hilltop, and it had just massive, beautiful buildings. Devoted specifically to, to gods, Greek gods, pagan gods, pagan temples. It was called the glorious city when, in fact, it was more the original sin city. You can go and see it now, and it is absolutely stunning. And Paul begins to engage with that culture. It says that he saw that all of these temples and that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the idols. That he would have seen things, these beautiful buildings, but dedicated to Athena or Poseidon or Zeus or Hermes, or Artemis, he saw all of these gods, and he begins to see these people think these gods are so big and powerful. And they have no idea that they've created a thousand gods to do the work of one. Zeus, the god of the sky, he controls lightning and all of these absolutely masterful storms. Like, Zeus is powerful, and yet Jesus did that with a word. Poseidon, the god of the sea, and yet Jesus calmed it with a word. He, he begins to see that these people have built up these gods and that these are weak gods compared to ours. That gives someone boldness. It says that he was provoked, which means irritated or distressed. I think as we read this, it's hard to consider that Athens might be more like us than different from us. 
that it's easy to go, gosh, how strange that they worshiped all these gods, and yet have we identified that in the culture around us? I'm going to say a couple things, but I'll give some caveats because it's Super Bowl Sunday. How strange would it be to see people worshiping in large stadiums? And yet we see it on Saturdays and Sundays sometimes. We have bars all across town where people are um, worshiping comfort or escapism. Temples and mosques all across Ohio where people are worshiping deceased and unknown gods. And I do want to say, not everyone that's cheering on a football team is practicing idolatry. That is, uh, in, it, truly, I believe this, that God gives what a theologian would call common graces in our lives, things that lost people and saved people can enjoy the same way. In the same way that we can taste good food and good drinks so a lost person can. In the same way that we can experience good weather or Ohio weather. <laughs> lost people can too. And that's true of fandom, but, but it is worth identifying if something is idolatry. There's a a song that was popular 15 years ago, 20 years ago, called Clear the Stage. But the whole premise of the song is that it was written about the idolatry that's present within the church. And he, he says this in talking about idols. Uh, Ross King wrote this. It says, anything I put before my God is an idol. Anything I want with all my heart is an idol. Anything I can't stop thinking of is an idol. Anything I give all my love is an idol. We say at Liberty Heights all the time that an idol is something that promises you what only God can give you. So does it mean you're practicing idolatry if you're a fan? Absolutely not. Are there times when it crosses into it? Absolutely. Are there times when my college football fandom has crossed into it? Absolutely. And yet we, we kind of pretend as if this isn't our culture, devoted to unknown gods or, or the god of sex or the god of entertainment or the god of comfort. Idolatry, we have three different possible reactions to it. The first one is we are blind to it, which I think is probably many of us. We don't even notice it. Second, we are desensitized to it. We used to notice it, but it doesn't really bother us anymore. Or third, we have befriended it and are participating we're blind to it, desensitized to it, or befriending it. Are we quick to say that's just the way of the world? That's just culture. Are we okay with people running in the wrong direction knowing that ultimately the wrong direction leads to a less preferable eternity? And I mean less preferable as in hell. Have we given up in the name of meekness trying to just get along for the sake of peace? Or did we used to go to war with it, and now we're tired? It says Paul's spirit was provoked, and so he was motivated to go until he was spurred to action. He went to the synagogue, and it says the marketplace. And yet when he contends, he did it without being contentious. Uh, Pastor Brad talked about that last week. Contend without being contentious. This is 1 Thessalonians 2 all over the place, but we see it over and over. 1 John 2 and 1 Corinthians 3, that we should be motivated by a love of God and a love of others. And that 
causes a believer to take the gospel to them like a nursing mother. Even dads in the room know what a precious relationship that is. That even the act itself builds intimacy between the mom and the child to the point that when it goes to become time for a bottle, there's actual mourning that happens in the life of the wife because she's losing that intimate connection with her baby. Or at least having a different one. It's easy to think about that kindness, that gentleness, and go, well, Jesus in in John chapter 2 goes into the temple and, and he sees all of this work for profit instead of prayer and he flips tables. He reacts with anger and two quick things on that. The first is he didn't sin. That's what scripture tells us. He did it without sinning. And the second one is it was anger directed at the sin but even at those who knew better, at the religious, at those who said that they were standing for God when in fact they were not. We should not be surprised when the world around us acts like lost people. But we should go to bat with those who claim Jesus. So he begins to preach, it says, the resurrection, Jesus and the resurrection. Because we know that a change in heart, the only way that anything's ever going to change is if the heart is changed. The heart changes the mind, it changes our actions. I think the the deal is, and this goes back to the apathy, we're just not sure that the gospel is what people need around us. We've looked around and we've diagnosed and we go, you know what that person needs? They just, they need help. They need a job. And in some ways, it's probably true. But what they need as a, as a person, as an image bearer of God, is Jesus. You see, the way that we interact with the world around us depends on what, how we've diagnosed the world. What does the world need? Well, in the same way that the prosperity gospel thinks that what you need is you need a good job and you need money and you need nice material wealth and health. It's misdiagnosed the problem. And so it's given us the wrong solution. The Bible says that our problem is sin. That sin not only ruins our life in the world or around us, but it has separated us from God and apart from the work of Christ, separated us for eternity. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that Jesus Christ took our sins upon him. This is the greatest bank transaction in history, right? He takes our sin when we confess our sin and repent of it. He takes our sin and exchange gives us righteousness, that he gives us beauty in exchange for our ashes, that our hopelessness is replaced with the hope of Jesus Christ, and that we get to take that exact same good news to the rest of the world, that my sin is given to him and his righteousness is imputed to me. And since we have his righteousness, since we have his spirit, the culture around us, the sin that we observe ought to provoke us. So this morning, maybe we need to confess to God that we're no longer provoked by the sin in our own lives and around us. And then finally, be convinced of who God is. We see this in verses 22 through 31. Uh, We ask the question, what would motivate us to tell people? 
about Jesus when we're all by ourselves? What would motivate us to be bothered by sin and confront it like Paul does? What would keep us on mission when times get tough like they did for Paul? Well, it's being fully convinced of who God is. When we can't see his hand, we trust his character. We, when we can't see his hand, I've heard some people say, we trust his heart. We know who God is, and we know his desire for other people, that it says that he's not willing that any would perish. So who is God? That's what Paul goes to battle with. He's, he's dealing with religious people, people who worship Many, many gods or even the Jews that were gathered there at the Areopagus where it says that he goes to stand before almost this university-style lecture, standing before the smartest people in all of Greece. And he begins to present who God is. And I do want to say this before we dig into it. If God never disagrees with you, you're probably not worshiping the God of the Bible. Right? Our hearts are prone to wonder. Our hearts are weakness. Our hearts desire things that often lead us away from God. We say all the time, the book of Jeremiah, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? If your God never disagrees with you, you're probably serving a false God. And so he begins to call out the false gods. Verse 23 says that uh, he identifies an, an altar, and it says, to the unknown God, and he says, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul's about to drop some knowledge. I love that he finds this, this inroad with them, right? They, they have gods of everything, and yet they're so worried about missing one that they have an altar to the unknown God. I know that we've got Zeus covered. I know that we've got Apollos covered. I know that we've, we've got Artemis covered. There's probably one we're missing then he goes on, he begins to describe the way that the real God differentiates from all of these weak ones that they worship. It says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He's addressing these philosophers and pagans that he desperately wants them to know the, the one true God, and he's saying, I know that you've tried to build this house that contains your gods, but my God is big. My God cannot be contained. I know that you've got this idea of who God is. My God is more magnificent than the ones that you've conceived. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. These people had an idea that their lives needed to be devoted toward almost keeping their gods happy and healthy. So they made sacrifices. They did everything they could to serve these gods, to feed these gods, to build up the empire of these gods. And he's saying, God is self-sufficient. In fact, he's the one that's sustaining you even in your idol worship, since he gives, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Furthermore, Paul says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, 
for we are indeed his offspring. He's using phrases from their poets to help them get the idea that God is enormous and yet near. That his power and might, and he's inconceivable and yet knowable. This is one of those crazy things about God is that God is above all things and yet present in our lives and cares, cares about our lives. God can save anyone. We had this in the sermon last week, but for the sake of time, it just kind of didn't work. But when I lived in Spring, Texas, which is just north of Houston. One of the strangest things that happened while I was there was there was this satanic temple that opened about a half mile from the church that I served at. In this really nice, almost country part of Spring, Texas called Old Spring, Old Town Spring, they opened a satanic temple and this pastor of it was a guy named Jacob McKelvey. Kind of a nice guy. But he had become embittered to the God of the Bible. He grew up Mormon, but had become embittered to God in general because his sister had died of a snake bite when they were young. He opens the Satanic Temple in October, believe it or not, October 31st, 2016, and it begins to function. And a church down the road, sadly not the one I serve at, but um, one called First Spring, that church... um, Instead of going and picketing like a lot of people did, uh, they said, no, if you want to picket, picket on your knees. Pray for those people. Pray that God would do something miraculous. And um, Jacob tells the story that he's driving when he, he almost, for the first time in his life, feels prompted to just go into this church. And he goes and he asks for the pastor, but it's a Friday, the pastor's not there. And so he says, Well, would you have him call me? And it begins this conversation where the pastor of the satanic church ends up giving his life to Jesus about six months after the church opened and it closed its doors. God can save anyone. God can save anyone. Every single week we pray for our one, right? We we lift up to God this person that we know that doesn't know Jesus. And and today I want to encourage you as you do that, that goodness gracious, if the example of Paul isn't enough, what about the example of Jacob that I just shared with you? Some of us are some of the greatest examples that God can save anyone. And we're motivated because we trust that God's character as revealed in the word reminds us of that. I want to close with the final three verses of this chapter. It says this, um, starting in verse, I believe, 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, we will hear you again about this. But Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. There are three different responses that people can give us in light of the gospel, and they're really giving those responses to God. The first is they say, You're crazy. It says they mocked him in verse 32. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. Hey, tell me more. Let me think on this. And then finally, some believe. And I want you to know that the reaction of people to the gospel, it's not on you. 
You can't be winsome or spiritual enough for, for it to work every time that you share the gospel. In fact, it has nothing to do with you at all. It is the Spirit of God who woos men to himself. It is the Spirit of God who saves people. It is not on you. As we close, I want to say faithfulness is success. A lot of times we look at success based on response or even how they treat us, and yet um, the Word of God says that we're storing up treasures in heaven. It's not always going to be a physical, um, worldly success like we define it. Instead, success is just being faithful where God's placed you, sharing the gospel where God's placed you, trusting the character of God when you can't see the end result. And as we close, I just want to remind you that we can learn from this example of Paul, what a leader Paul was, but that we can be active in the midst of waiting, that we can uh, battle through being alone, and ultimately that we can trust that God is going to move. God, we love you so much. Lord, so many people, so many of us today are worried about taking the gospel to our friends or our neighbors, and yet I heard an incredible story, Lord, today of one of our wonderful church members who shared the gospel with someone that she loved and they accepted. God, we pray for that, that new believer. God, so many of us are waiting, waiting for someone to walk up to us and, and ask about the gospel. And yet, in the midst of that, in the midst of a worship service like this, we see one of our own going to the Middle East to take the gospel. God, give us that kind of boldness. Give us that type of confidence in who you are. Remind us, Lord, that we don't have to fear. You have equipped us for the task that's before us. So God, I pray for anyone in this room that doesn't know you, God, that they'd find you this morning. Anyone in this room that does know you but is just living in, in apathy for taking the gospel to somebody else, God, that you would remind them of who you are and who you created them to be. That we'd be motivated by the power of the good news to take the, gospels to the, end of the, the gospel to the end of the earth. God, remind us that no one's beyond reach. That if Paul wasn't, if Jacob wasn't, if we aren't, then no one is. God, we trust you. Give us boldness and we'll thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.